Greetings and welcome to the Mark Petrona Show. Really appreciate you tuning in. Uh, great pleasure now to bring you Tom Quiggin, uh, a very well-known expert in the field of intelligence. He is a published author. He's written many uh, dozens of papers. He has uh, testified as an expert witness on a number of court cases. And uh, we love having Tom on to get his perspective, namely uh, in this particular case on the matter of China and the ongoing threats to Taiwan. Welcome once again, Tom. Well, good morning, Mark, and thanks for inviting me to Saga Radio once again. All right, let's talk a little bit about Taiwan uh, facing uh, dozens of incursions on its airspace, its defense zone, as you yourself have pointed out. Uh, it's not only just that, of course, it's the rhetoric that we're hearing from China uh, threatening not only Taiwan, but its neighbors, Australia, for instance, uh, which has been asked to help, Taiwan has reached out to uh, the democratic countries like, like Australia. You can question whether or not uh, Australia is becoming more like China these days. But even so, uh, what happened after that, what followed was a threat by China leveled at Australia saying, you know, unless you want to be reduced to cannon fodder, you'll stay out of it. And when you hear this sort of thing, you can't help but think whether China is ready to move. And as you've pointed out in our discussions previous, uh, the planets may be aligned for China in that regard, sadly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. In the wonderful world of intelligence, Mark, we often talk about indicators and warnings, I and W. It's kind of a whole science unto itself. And basically what it is, is you look to see if country X or country Y is going to commit an act of aggression or do something you know, fundamentally different. And quite often, it's the little small signals that give away the intent rather than the really big ones. So looking at China from an INW perspective right now, there's a whole series of lights coming up on the panel, if you will. Uh, so, for instance, as you mentioned, uh, Taiwan itself is worried that it may be on the receiving end of a Chinese attack. They've asked for help from Australia. Uh, the Chinese government itself in late August made a statement, and it actually included the words, threat of immediate war with Taiwan. So China's not sort of dancing around or making, you know, vague statements. It was like a threat of immediate war. We also see, uh, like you mentioned there, the one the that's really interesting right now, it's getting folks' attention, is the constant violation of Taiwan's air defense zone. This is not necessarily uh, chi Taiwan's sovereign territory. This is uh, China's or Taiwan's uh, air defense zone. And an air defense zone is just a sort of a magic line on a map that if you cross that line and move towards that country, you must identify who you are, where you're going, what you're doing, etc. China has been violating that constantly. And we saw on October 1st, they did it 38 different times. On October 2nd, 39. And October 4th, yesterday, they had 52 different aircraft enter Taiwan's uh, air defense zone. Some of them were fighters, some of them were bombers. One of them is what we call an air, AWACS aircraft. It's an airborne warning control system. It's sort of a flying command post. So those collectively uh, show that uh, China is being very aggressive. Now, if you step back a little and look what else is going on, China has some internal problems right now. They have an energy shortage, which is shutting down uh, industrial production in a large number of provinces. And they have a financial collapse going on of one of their largest real estate companies. And just today, another real estate company has defaulted on bonds. In other words, they're not paying their debts. 
So there's a perception, a possibility that President Xi of China is looking to create an external distraction to take the focus away from his own country where he's got some problems. And typically, in a sort of political science or history point of view, countries love to start foreign wars when they've got problems at home as a means of destruction or distraction, rather. Piled on top of this, of course, is Taiwan's primary ally and protector is the United States. And a lot of people in the world right now perceive America as weak, given not just the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but rather the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And then on top of that, we have this rather bizarre situation where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that is to say the number one military commander in the United States, actually made a phone call, and he admits that he made a phone call while Trump was, uh, well, the presidential transition was occurring, and he told the Chinese that he would warn them of an upcoming American attack. Now, forget the idea whether that's treasonous or not, but it certainly shows that uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has, one wouldn't want to say Chinese leanings, but he certainly seems favorable towards China. So there's a perception uh, that the American defense establishment is, you know, quote-unquote, soft on China, if you want to use an older phrase. And then just to go back to the view from 100,000 feet, it's very clear, no matter whose side you're on, how you look at it, that America as a superpower is in decline. China is in ascendance, and the two powers are coming into conflict with each other. Historically speaking, that causes what is called friction in diplomatic circles. You and I would use the term war. So there's a whole series of indicators and warnings showing that China is becoming aggressive. They're pushing outwards. Uh, we're focusing on Taiwan today, but other countries such as Malaysia and the Philippines are getting the same message. They're upset. They're worried about China, and they're worried about overt aggression. Yeah, not to mention Japan, Tom. I mean, let's not talk. Japan is a powerful economic force in that region and uh, has been at odds with China for decades. And then you throw in North Korea in that mix and you get, you get a uh, sort of a Balkan-style powder keg. Uh, China, of course, I, I couldn't agree more on the matter of China facing some internal problems. Of course, there's the real estate uh, company down there that's it's the large, it's a huge, uh, I think it's, it's worth like 300 billion or something like that. Uh, Evergrande, I, th I believe it's called. Yeah, Evergrande, yeah, Evergrande is $300 billion short uh, of cash right now for payments they have coming up and they can't reach it. Collectively, they own about 4% of all Chinese real estate development, which runs into the hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's teetering on the brink right now. It's, it could have a huge impact. And then, uh, obviously, China knows there is weakness abroad. Uh, on the heels of the pandemic, uh, still at the, you know, probably the back end of this thing. But even so, economically speaking, many Western countries have been uh, hurt badly as a result of the pandemic, continue to uh, face economic headwinds, at, at, you, know, you know, with all of that. And then, of course, you've got all the investigations around the uh, origins of COVID-19, more and more people stepping up. And you're occasionally you've done terrific work on this file as well, uh, where China is believed to have known a lot more about this than they have been letting on. Uh, the Chinese controlled World Health Organization now implicated in hiding key details early on. And so there's the strong sense on the part of many that China exploited the pandemic 
in order to gain strength, economic strength versus the West and so forth. And then on top of that, you add to that the ongoing incursions into uh, the West in terms of the theft of intellectual property, uh, the um, undermining of, of freedom. Media, for instance, we know that China owns huge chunks of Hollywood. And so there's a growing sense that China means business and has meant business, but now um, has taken it upon itself to strike while the iron's hot, if you will. And uh, looks like they're going to go after Taiwan. I mean, if you were in Taiwan right now, I, I expect you'd be pretty nervous if you wanted to hold on to your sovereignty. Uh, what say you? Yeah, I mean, Taiwan is under a lot of stress at the moment. Uh, there is another problem with these continuous air incursions, uh, and this puts a problem uh, in the face of Taiwan. They say, is this just a series of incursions in order to be difficult, in order to be uh, aggressive and to demonstrate will, or uh, is this a lineup for an actual attack? So one way to create a surprise attack on an enemy uh, is to launch multiple fake attacks like they're doing right now. These aircraft coming in aren't just sort of like cruising around. They're adopting an attack profile. They're coming in with bombers. They're coming in with fighters to cover the bombers. And they're coming in with AWACS aircraft to give them good local control over those aircraft. So if you do this day after day after day, eventually uh, your opposition starts to wear down and they start to think, well, this is just craziness. You know, they're just they're just being silly. Uh, and then that's when you launch the real attack uh, and folks, you know, get caught asleep. And this has been done numerous times before. A number of strategists to, uh, adhere to this kind of an idea. And this is, has to be greatly wearing on the nerves of Taiwan as they deal with constant daily incursions uh, by fighters, by bombers and by AWACS aircraft. And to your point, Tom, I want to read you part of this uh, story from Reuters, Taiwan president warns of catastrophic consequences if it falls to China. And, of course, this is uh, also meant as a warning to uh, Taiwan's neighbors. Taiwan falling to China would trigger a catastrophic consequence for peace in Asia. That, according to President Tsai Ing-wen, who wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs published uh, this week. And uh, if threatened, Taiwan will do whatever it takes to defend itself. Taiwan, of course, a tiny nation but a little beacon of, of democracy in that region, which is claimed by China as its sovereign territory, has faced a massive stepping up of pressure from Beijing since Friday, with 148 and counting Chinese Air Force aircraft flying into Taiwan's air defense zone over a four-day period. China, by the way, has blamed the United States, Taiwan's most important international backer and arms supplier, for the rise in tensions dis uh, while China, has, while Taiwan rather has has called China the chief culprit in the current situation, um, okay. So, what would happen in the case of an invasion? Uh, would would the United States come to Taiwan's defense? Would Western nations like Canada do anything? Uh, what can t the Taiwan people expect in terms of support here? Tom? Well, this is. This, this is a very good question post-Afghanistan. Uh, if President Trump uh, was still president or if W uh, was still president, most people believe that uh, America would not only honor its uh, agreements with Taiwan, it would probably do so quite aggressively. Uh, but given that President Biden is in the White House at the moment and there is a 
how to put this nicely, there's a perception that the White House is not the most organized place at the moment, uh, and that policies, major policies, such a decision to go to war, uh, would be fragmented because the leadership in the White House itself appears to be quite badly fragmented. So this is another uh, potential uh, problem is that China is pushing and they're testing American reactions to see how far they can push until they finally decide that maybe it's worth going ahead and recovering what they determined to be their errant province. Uh, it's interesting to note from an economic standpoint that at the moment, we have vehicle production lines shut down in North America because of a shortage of computer chips. Uh, guess where large numbers of those chips come from? Uh, that's Taiwan. Taiwan is a major manufacturer of all these chips that we're currently short of at the moment. Uh, so if you think there's a shortage now, if Taiwan goes offline as a trading partner, uh, then we're going to be in that much more trouble again. The uh, conflict with Taiwan right now is also interesting in the sense that it is a sort of indicator and warning, uh, again, that we have offloaded all our production to China or to Malaysia, the Philippines, whatever. So the question would be if we were to get it, if we, I, I mean the West or whatever, was to get in any kind of a pushing contest with China in a serious way, how long would our economies be able to continue to run without Chinese spare parts, without Chinese medicine, without Chinese materials? Uh, and that's another factor that has to be taken into any kind of a response. As to American response, I think there's probably enough will left in the U.S. Congress at any rate uh, to at least make a show of defending Taiwan. Here in Canada, um, Trudeau has made it abundantly clear on numerous repeated occasions that he is a big fan of China. He's a supporter <laughs> of China. Uh, he did nothing with the two Michaels. He's done nothing with the lithium mines being taken over in Canada. He's done nothing on the Huawei file. Uh, I would find it incredible that if Canada actually did anything under Trudeau to help Taiwan. Remember that Justin Trudeau is the prime minister. As soon as he came to power, he withdrew the Canadian military from attacking ISIS. And I think ISIS was sort of like the one thing everybody in the world agreed upon was that these were seriously bad dudes who were committing mass rape, mass murder, and attempted genocide. Uh, so Trudeau wouldn't even engage in that one. And then he turned around and lets ISIS fighters into Canada. Uh, so could Trudeau find the will to engage on Taiwan? Possibly, but at the moment, there's no indication that he wouldn't. And all of his history goes the opposite direction. Yeah, uh, which is tragic, really, because at a time when Taiwan needs its democratic friends, we have a weak leader like Justin Trudeau, who worships at the feet of Xi Jinping. Um, okay, I got to throw this at you. We don't know exactly what weaponry Taiwan has. I mean, I hate to use the word nuclear option here. But you know as well as I do that, for instance, if Israel was attacked, I mean really attacked, by extremely powerful hostile forces, that a lot of people think that Israel has the capacity to defend itself with nuclear weapons. That's never been official to my knowledge. Does Taiwan have that potential capability here that the world doesn't know about, maybe uh, their defenses were fortified under Trump before that slimeball Biden uh, got in. Is it possible that Taiwan has weapons that potentially it would use 
And you just heard the quote by the leader of Taiwan saying, we'll do whatever is necessary to defend ourselves. I mean, how hot could this get? Uh, there is no indication at any point in any of this that Taiwan has a, uh, a nuclear strike capability. Uh, given the size of the island, given its allies, given everything else, there would be an indicator. Israel clearly has a nuclear capability. Everybody sort of knows it, even though everybody kind of ignores it. Uh, it's based in southern Israel. It's based out of a nuclear reactor. I mean, yeah, if Israel was attacked, they'd respond. Pakistan and India both have nuclear capabilities, and if they're pushed too far, they may respond uh, with nuclear weapons as well. Nothing to suggest Taiwan has any sort of nuclear capability. Uh, to the contrary, there's actually just been discussions over the last couple of weeks as to whether Taiwan should start buying even conventional missiles, which could at least return fire onto the Chinese mainland. In other words, give them the ability to hit a, a city or a major industrial complex in China itself. Most of Taiwan's weapons are uh, defensive in the sense they may be able to defend the island against aggression, but they don't have the ability to strike out and attack in a major sort of way. Like they don't have an ICBM force or anything like that. Uh, they don't have a good ballistic missile capability that would allow them to take out a Chinese oil refinery or something like that, for instance. But does, okay, are there American warships docked no. in Taiwan? Do we know? No. I mean, now, whether they're docked, uh, they don't usually dock in Taiwan. That causes lots of friction, but there's all kinds of American warships in the area. They regularly transit the strait between Taiwan and China as a demonstration. And many of those American warships are nuclear capable. Also in the Pacific, there's a couple of what's called SSGNs. They're uh, great monstrous sized submarines. They're old ballistic missile carrying submarines that have been converted to fire cruise missiles. So the USS Michigan, for instance, has the capability to fire about 120 cruise missiles in about 30 minutes, which is an absolutely you know, devastating uh, missile strike. And a certain number of those are known to be nuclear. It's never clear how many of them are nukes, but at least some of them are nukes. So the Americans do have a strike capability uh, in the immediate area with which they could strike back at China in both a conventional and nuclear manner. Tom Quiggin joins us on Saga 960 on the Mark Petroni Show. All right, um, let's play Dr. Strangelove. Um, Taiwan is attacked. U.S. subs are there, as you mentioned, armed with nuclear, you know, capability. Um, perhaps American vessels come under attack. These are international waters. How hot could this get? Could this trigger the unthinkable? I'm talking nuclear war here. How bad could this get? I mean, yeah, we got this weakling, Joe Biden, who's been compromised by the Chinese. I mean, the guys, I mean, look at Hunter, right? I mean, uh, this is a guy who uh, was clearly compromised in bed with the Chinese. I mean, literally in bed with the Chinese, yes. <laughs> yeah. In his case, yeah. I mean, but, you know, in the fog of war, you've seen this. I mean, you're an expert in the field. Yeah. Things can go wrong, even with a weak, spineless individual and a corrupt one like Biden in the White House, things can go wrong and get hot in a hurry. Miscommunications. Um, yeah, the, the, the problem with this conflict is not so much 
that necessarily China will say, okay, as of Wednesday at noon, we're going to go in, we're going to pull in a full attack. Uh, it's a possibility, but not a probability. What you're sort of referring to, I think, is sort of a war by accident. So, for instance, China has been acting very aggressively against Malaysia, the Philippines, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea. Uh, their Coast Guard has been uh, pushing into the waters of other countries. And a war or a confrontation by accident uh, at a time of high tension is is a great possibility. Uh, I think Malaysia this week is calling in the Chinese ambassador and they're complaining because uh, a Chinese vessel was acting extraordinarily aggressively towards a Malaysian vessel and Malaysia is getting upset about it again. So a war by accident uh, is very much a real thing. This was uh, very much the issue when there was still a Soviet Union in Europe. Uh, it was very much the issue with the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, and there was a couple of events during the Cold War where nuclear war almost got started by accident just because of technical failures. So when you have a period of high tension, China is pushing outwards aggressively. China has internal problems at home. America has significant internal problems anyway. And then on top of that, they have a leadership issue. And then you have this sort of shift between a rising power and a sinking power. All of those things are a recipe for conflict, a recipe for war. So I, I'm not sort of so worried about the idea that China might just decide to do something silly and go nuclear tomorrow, and I don't think America would either. I don't think America's going to go to a nuclear war over the defense of Taiwan, because it'll wind up crisping the entire planet. But the possibility of war by accident is a very real one, especially when you have two leaders one of whose seen already is very weak, which is uh, President Biden. And then you see President Z right now is also cracking down very hard on large tech companies. He's cracking down on anybody who's not from his little Shanghai clique of princelings. Uh, so Taiwan or sorry, China itself actually seems to be going through a bit of a leadership crisis as President Z is cracking down on any potential centers of opposition to him. So when you've got all those kinds of different tensions ongoing, the chances of an accidental war or the chances of, you know, a Filipino fishing boat is sunk by a, a Chinese Coast Guard vessel, a Filipino Coast Guard vessel opens fire, and the next thing you know, you have a diplomatic incident, the next thing you have a military incident, and then you've got aircraft pushing into each other's air defense zones and you know, there's your accident, there's your spark that may light the fire. Yeah, what you're talking about is reminiscent of the kind of pre-World War I scenario, you know, Sarajevo, uh, you know, we are talking about a number of different alli alliances um, and a trigger event touches off a major conflict, except this time, of course, the weapons uh, are far more deadly than they were uh, in the early 1900s. Leading yeah, I mean, up to you know World War One. Yeah, on the twenty eighth of June, nineteen fourteen, Gabriel Princip in Sarajevo had no intention of starting World War One. He had <laughs> nothing to do with any of that. He just wanted to shoot an Austrian archduke. And by the way, the archduke was a third level, almost unimportant guy. Uh, but yeah, it it happened just at a time when there was a series of weak alliances. There was a series of leaders who perceived themselves as weak and fearful. And Gabriel Princip inadvertently unleashed a whole series of events, which wound up with Russia, Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, France, and the United Kingdom all mobilizing. And yeah, World War I was very much an accidental war in that sense. Well, let's hope that we don't see an accidental war or a war of any kind, um, because 
<laughs> the possibility that it could be a wide-ranging conflict is extremely serious. And I, and I think people underestimate Japan's role here, Tom. And I, you, I don't know where you're, what your take is here, but Japan is not going to put up with that crap. It's a powerful nation in its own right. Now, it doesn't have, obviously, dating back to post-World War II, when it was as prohibited from having its own military, uh, restricted, um, you know, following uh, the agreement that was made, the surrender agreement. But Japan is not going to allow itself to be trampled by China. And there are stones throw from one another. I mean, you know, it's like, in a, in a way, China is bottled up. You know what I'm saying? And this kind of analysis, this kind of geopolitical analysis of China has been around for decades. That China is kind of hemmed in, you know, surrounded in a way, right? Well, you've got Taiwan, you've got Japan, you've got South Korea. Yeah, they've got a client state in North Korea. And then you've got other nations that are kind of tied in with China, but also moving in the direction of capitalism. I'm talking about, you know, Vietnam and these places. And so I think China feels like it's grown now, economically speaking. It wants to stretch out, but it looks around itself in the, in the South China Sea, and it sees, himself, sees itself as surrounded by states that are not cooperating with them. And so what does it do? It, it invades you know, Tibet and stuff like that, which it did uh, decades ago. Uh, but is that the scenario going on here in terms of, the, the mentality of China right now is that it wants to expand, but it feels itself constantly knocking up against. And of course, you got the Americans in there as well as, a, as an Asian power. And it keeps knocking up against all these forces that are hostile to the expansion of this regime. Yeah, there's a number of different things going on. One is, uh, as you mentioned, Japan, uh, a significant power in its own right. The Japanese self-defense forces, as they're called, have been changing posture quite a bit in the last, I'll say, five, eight years or so. Uh, Japan has now, Japan was forbidden from having aircraft carriers given uh, the events of World War II, uh, but Japan now has a helicopter carrier, which is just like one short step away from being an actual aircraft carrier. Japan is buying more submarines, they're buying uh, better fighter aircraft, and the Japanese have all but admitted that the idea of a defense-only military force in Japan is outdated, and they're moving towards a military force which can project power uh, if required under these kinds of circumstances. China has, without getting into a whole history on China, China also has a sort of problem in a certain way in that China was humiliated by the Western powers and by Japan particularly in, shall we say, 1900 up to 1945 or whatever. Uh, large parts of China became colonial property. Uh, China got uh, very badly beaten uh, by Japan in World War II, the rape of Nanking. that was probably about 300,000 Chinese dead. And there is a great sense of Chinese shame and humiliation, which still hasn't necessarily been overcome as powerful as they see themselves now, there's still that sense of, you know, we have to impress upon people they can't do this to us again. Uh, so there is that sort of sense of China wanting to become a greater power reaching out. They had a hundred year plan where, you know, China was going to become a massive colonial power and they seem well on the way to doing that. So yeah, China's pushing outwards, it's expanding. Their colonialism, if you will, has taken on a different form from British, French or German or 
colonialism of the past. In the sense, it was very much economic and diplomatic colonialism rather than military and diplomatic colonialism. Uh, but I think even China is finding that starting to find its limits. Uh, there's only so much you can do. I mean, they bought off Pakistan. They own the major port in Pakistan. They own most of the major ports on the coast of Africa. They're buying up huge land in Africa. They're controlling most of the lithium mines around the world, including one in Canada that just went to a Chinese company a week and a half or two weeks ago or whatever it was. Uh, but even that, I think, is starting to find its natural limit. And there's folks in China who want to push outwards uh, in a much more direct and aggressive manner. And if you look at the Chinese military over the last several years, it's hard to say that they're not planning that, i.e. building aircraft carriers, building attack submarines, that sort of stuff. These are offensive weapons, uh, and China's pushing into the area. India, uh, also, of course, a controller of the Indian Ocean in that area, becoming increasingly concerned about the influence of China, and they're starting to also push back both on land borders in their, in their sort of far north, if you will, and on maritime borders in the south. But, yeah, collectively, the entire region, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, India, are all starting to have serious doubts about where China is going with its current uh, policy, and it frightens them. So it's a time of high tension in the region, and it's a time of great dislocation on the, the global scene where the United Nations is a useless talk shop. The World Bank and the IMF are, you know, the IMF's got an internal corruption program going on right now because it turns out they fudged all their details on China to make China a more attractive place to do business when in fact it wasn't. So the IMF is not only sort of a stabilizing force for the West, in fact, it's become a, a, a pawn of China. So yeah, it's kind of like no matter where you look, there's yeah. instability, there's corruption, there's dislocation, there's friction, there's change, there's unease. So yeah, we live in, uh, as the Chinese would say, we live in interesting, interesting. times. <laughs> yeah. And in this country, of course, rather than having strong leaders that want to defend freedom, we have corrupt ones that seem to be in the pocket of that country, uh, financially or otherwise. But I, you know, on, on this China, on this Japan thing, I think China knows that Japan eventually is going to shake off the constrictions against it uh, that date back to post-World War II times. And um, this is going to ramp that up, I think. The Japanese are going to say, okay, enough already. You know, it's been however, you know, seven decades or, you know, however long it's been since 1945. Uh, it is now time perhaps to become a nuclear power. I don't know. That's unthinkable in terms of the eyes of the Chinese. But if they want to push, then I think countries like Japan need to push. And there needs to be a strategic alliance there uh, between these countries like India, like Japan, like South Korea, the United States, Canada, who knows, who cares, uh, you know, with, with, with an aim towards really constraining China. But unfortunately, when you have a bozo like Biden in office, um, China knows that a weakling in the White House isn't going to be a permanent thing. And so I, I suspect that it may strike while the iron's hot. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate this. Cheers. Thanks, Mark. Always a pleasure. Tom Quiggin, host of the Quiggin Report. Check it out today. It's, it's a terrific um, show, and, and Tom does a, a wonderful job. Uh, that's it uh, on this edition of the Mark Petroni Show. Um, let's do it again real soon, shall we? See you next time.